Hey, hi. Surprise, this isn't an episode of someone else's movie, but it is a special bonus for you. Earlier this week, I appeared on the Big Story podcast, which is Jordan Heath Rawlings' daily news show just a few tiles over on the Frequency Network, to talk about the themes that emerged at this year's TIFF and also Joker. We're throwing it into the feed to give you a sense of what Jordan does, and if you enjoy it, go subscribe to it wherever you found this or go directly to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Thanks for listening, and remember, I was exhausted. We all kind of know that art is a product of the world in which it was made. Sometimes I feel like we know that as a fact, but we just don't understand it. Mostly that's because we almost never experience art that's all made at the same time. We see a movie out in theaters one week. Maybe we read a novel that's a few years old the next week. We watch reruns of TV shows from whatever decade, and we play video games anytime from the 80s to the 90s to the 2000s. So it is impossible to consume culture like that and pull out a sense of the world that created it, because all that culture was made in different worlds. So in order to get a real picture of how the world around us informs our art and vice versa, you need to kind of overdose on work that's created at the same time in the same world. You need to live in it for a while and not do much else. That's really not easy to do, except at certain places and certain times like every year, in Toronto in early September, when Hollywood comes to town. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, and this is The Big Story. Norm Wilner is the senior film writer at Now Magazine. He is also the host of Someone Else's Movie, a great podcast on this very network that you should check out. And he has been covering TIFF for the past two weeks, and he is very tired. Hi, Norm. Hi. Yeah. I'm Are you okay? Good. I have seen somewhere in the vicinity of 60 films and 30, 35 shorts since, well, we started in the middle of August. But yeah, the last 11 days have been, you know, it's five movies a week. <laughs> See? Five movies a day. It feels like each five day Five movies is a, week. a week sounds like a lot. Four to five movies a day. Four to five movies a week is average for me, but every year. And this is, I think this is my 31st festival as an accredited journalist. I'm, I'm old and I've been doing this forever. So I'm used to the rhythm of it, but yeah. This, this year was a lot. So what do you learn about movies and the industry in general, but also about, like, our culture when you consume that much <laughs> of it, like mainlining it day after day for three straight weeks? Yeah, and it's only a sliver, right? I've only seen 60 films is a fourth, maybe, of what's on offer in terms of the features. Uh, I missed Hustlers. I missed Waves. I missed uh, a few other films that a lot of people were talking about. Uh, it's impossible to see everything. They schedule the screenings against each other. It's right, but it's also impossible factor. to see more than you saw. I probably could much. have. I, I think the theme that I saw this year, uh, there were two. There was one of the world being broken, like a general sense that everything is falling apart, disintegrating, social structures are collapsing, uh, parents are dying. There were a lot of parents dying this year. It felt like, and I'm not exaggerating, I think, of the 60 features I saw, 40 of them involved cancer of some sort. People die off camera. People die on camera. There are a couple of films about assisted suicide. I saw two of them back to back, which was bizarre. There's themes of family units splintering and shattering, people being lost. Uh, I was amazed that in Noah Baumbach's marriage story, which is the story of a couple that divorces badly, nobody dies. Not even like they're, they're, there's a relative who died a long time before the movie started, but I just kept waiting for somebody else to start coughing. It's It's that atmosphere. So that was one theme. And the other theme is the larger sense of destruction that comes with the world falling apart. Just uh, class war, 
inequality. I mean, it's in the documentaries, of course, it always is. But but it's creeping. Or it's not creeping. It's actively in the dramas that we're seeing now. Movies about systems breaking down and abandoning people. Movies about people being crushed by forces they don't even understand or forces they think they do. Uh, people failing to harness the power that they have or people who don't understand that they no longer have the power. It's, these are classic conflict themes, absolutely. These are not new. But this year, it was in everything. It was the air that the films were breathing. How typical is it of a festival like this that happens annually, that features, you know, dozens and dozens of the biggest movies of the year, that you can pull out a really cohesive theme from, you know, Thousands of people worked together to make what you just saw. Yeah, yeah. Um, it happens every few years where it's just something you can't ignore. Sometimes, you know, the story, two's a coincidence, three's a trend, four's a film festival theme. Hmm. Uh, sometimes it's easy. You know, there was that one year where everything was about economic collapse because it was 2010 and it was two years after the meltdown and everything was about that on some level. So you look back two years ago to see what happened and, of course, it was Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the election and... This is the year, finally, where that is the active text and not just the subtext. The last year, uh, Piers Handling told me when he was arranging the final, his final platform slate that the movies were about struggle, that he found that was the common theme. They're all people struggling. This is the year that people are fighting back, uh, understanding their situation and taking action. Jojo Rabbit does it. Joker kind of does it. Uh, it's in a whole bunch of, of movies, and they don't all handle it as well, but it certainly played this year that this is a season of movies about resistance. So what do movies about resistance feel like and what makes a good one and what what, what was doesn't the, work? Yeah, well, I mean, they're intended to inspire us and, you know, it feels to me like they should be heartwarming, but to your point, eh. they're not this year. Well, for film, right? I mean, for cinematic narrative, defeat is as good as a, as a victory, right? Because if you can die with honor, right. you know, that's a samurai movie. Or it's a movie like Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life, which was about a... a an Austrian farmer who was a conscientious objector uh, in, in the Second World War and was put on trial as a, as a war criminal, effectively, for not saluting the Fuhrer and joining up. Uh, and that was one of the most moving films I saw because it's all about what it really means to be resistant. It's about him knowing he's right and being prepared to sacrifice himself. And that sort of messianic fervor being directed at something that is, you know, undeniably decent is thrilling in its way. I think, and oh, and the other thing that I keep forgetting to mention is that early on in the film, Terrence Malick takes his first political stand in like ever by having the mayor of this town in Austria that's being occupied by the Nazis get drunk and start spouting about immigrants. And the language Mm. he uses is straight out of Trump. It's not, like it's deliberate. It's not vague. Right. They are quoting, they are prefacing, they are presaging Donald Trump and saying, look, this is happening now. This, you can't pretend this is just an isolated incident. What are you doing? What can you do? And that's in a lot of movies this year. Parasite is about economic inequality. It's about this working-class family of scammers living in a crappy apartment, a subterranean apartment, who end up infiltrating the home of a wealthy uh, architect and his family. And um, it is implied, but they get they all get jobs pretending not to know each other. One becomes the the daughter's tutor, and one becomes the son's art therapist and one becomes the housemaid and one becomes the chauffeur. And five minutes in, this is, you know, oh, I know what's going to happen. I did not. And it went somewhere completely differently and still manages to be about the disparity of working class and upper class and literally the way things trickle down and it's never money. 
and I've seen neither movie, yeah. but the plot you just described sounds a lot like Hustlers, which I'm was also this. one of the hugely talked about movies yeah, at this festival. Um, I think Rad covered that for us. I didn't get to see it. Yeah, but uh, I'm just fascinated by at the same festival, at the same time, the themes can be so closely related, and you talk to the people who make these films. Mm-hmm. Oh, everybody's singing the same song. Absolutely. Are they all cognizant about the song that they're all singing? I think they all know that the movement is happening. They're working on these films for years, right? I mean, it takes, right. on average, it takes two years to make a, to make and release a film. The world we're in is kind of nudging us in this direction. I think if you're an artist and you're not a jerk, or even if you are, this is something to to get talked about. It's something that works its way into your storytelling. Ryan Johnson's Knives Out uh, has characters who are openly, like it's set in the real world. It's an Agatha Christie whodunit murder mystery thing, and it's a, a delight. But there are characters who are Trumpers. There are mm. rich idiots who... Have no problem. Don Johnson plays this this guy who's married into a publishing family. He's used to drinking and being wealthy. And at one point, he's, um, he explains that, you know, well, immigrants are in the way and we shouldn't do th- – uh, they work really hard. And he's talking to, to um, a Latina woman who's the health care provider to his father-in-law. And something comes up about her mother's undocumented status, which then they, this wealthy family uses as a cudgel on this woman when they want something. And there's no question that this is the real world. It's just existing in the, 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 this film contains the real world within it, even as it's being ridiculous and having people pushing each other downstairs and punching each other in the face. And that's kind of great. And it was absolutely invigorating to watch that in the Q&A afterwards where Ryan Johnson and all of these movie stars came out. And, you know, like Don Johnson is there, but also Jamie Lee Curtis and Chris Evans and Daniel Craig. And the audience questions are about the money and the immigration and the the economic inequality because it's on everybody's minds. Did it used to be this way? And I'm not asking uh, if there's always a theme or not, but when you think back to the collections of movies that would appear at festivals like this in the mid-90s or in the early 2000s, were they always as explicitly or were so many of them always explicitly about the real world and addressing it as directly? I don't think so. I think in the 90s, certainly what you saw especially after 1999 when we had that wave of films that all won Oscars and TIFF became designated as the launching pad for awards season. I think for a long, long time, TIFF was really good to get a sense of what people thought were, uh, was going to be an important movie or an Oscar winner, which aren't always the same thing. Right. Uh, but you rarely got a sense that everything in it was engaged with the way we live now. It happened from time to time. There are these little glimmers, uh, but they would be couched in period pieces, or they would be you know, like two films that just happened to have the same theme. The greater push, I think, I hate to pin it on social media, but it's probably true. Social media has created this buzz in everybody's heads where we're always aware of what's going on in the world, whether or not yeah, we engage with it. The culture is everywhere. Yeah, and you have filmmakers who are rising up and making, coming out of nowhere, making movies about women's representation in the world of art. Mm. And that sort of thing, I mean, it's engaged with modern culture in the present day in a way that Maybe it wasn't 10 years ago. Or 10 years ago, it would have been a small film that no one paid any attention to. But now the theme is resonating with people. And it's an, it's, it's immediate in a way that a period piece is supposed to be, right? Movies are supposed to, art is supposed to comment on us. And if you're not making a movie that says something, or if your movie doesn't want to say anything, you know, no one is saying, oh, I don't want to play politics this year. No one is saying, well, my film's not political. And if they are, they're probably made a bad film. Is this the other side of the coin? 
that we've talked about before when we talk about how all the big blockbuster movies that studios make are the same because they all are a part of the same system and culture now? Is this the other side of that where actually all the art films, who I presume are being greenlit by the same cadre of executives. Well, Disney owns Fox and Fox Searchlight now, and yeah, and Fox Searchlight delivered a bunch of stuff this year that was So really is this the other side of that monoculture? I think it's supposed to be. I don't know if it... I You know, you can't tell where it starts and where it stops, right? Ryan Johnson made The Last Jedi, so he gets to make Knives Out now, and because he's a beloved indie filmmaker who made a massive success, he can get Chris Evans and Christopher Plummer and Daniel Craig, and they all want to work with him in, in his and play in his in his world... But you also can't help but notice that, oh, yeah, this movie has James Bond and Captain America goofing around in it. Right. That's all part of it. (laughs) All of this brings me to uh, the movie that crosses both of these uh, lines. Inevitably, this was going to happen. Yeah, Joker was a gala. Yeah. do not understand. It was a comic. I mean, it's not, I don't know if it technically qualifies as a comic book movie. It's a comic book movie. It's a Joker. I mean, it's... He's a comic book character. I don't know if he has his own comic. Um, Or if this story's ever been told in a comic form, Uh, I guess. It's pieces of it have. I mean... Okay, so, but a comic book movie was the gala. Yeah. So how did it go? Um, some people really liked it. I I didn't see the gala screening. I caught it the next day at the press screening with 500 people. Uh, And it's... eh, uh, Joaquin Phoenix is very good. He does some stuff that's interesting. He lost a lot of weight for the role, so he looks freakish and strange even before any of the other stuff happens. But ultimately, I think as soon as they cast him, creative development stopped on everything else. They just assumed he'd fix whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody's been talking about the aesthetic, which borrows very heavily. It's set in, you know, quote-unquote Gotham City, but it's really Manhattan and Brooklyn in 1981, very specifically. It's, it's one of those things, it's in our world. It's a, you know, big relevant thing. But the real hook is that they wanted to create a film that looks and breathes like a Scorsese movie, specifically Taxi Driver and the King of Comedy. And so what they've done, uh, amazingly enough to my mind, is simply make Taxi Driver and the King of Comedy, but with the Joker. Hmm. They haven't reworked the material or uh, finessed it to fit the story they're telling. They've simply plugged this guy into those films. Uh, he becomes obsessed with a young woman. He stalks a wealthy man who's running for political office. That's all out of Taxi Driver. He has a, oh, he has trouble at his job and the people around him don't like him. That's also Taxi Driver. Uh, but also he wants to be on a talk show as a stand-up comedian, which is exactly what Robert De Niro wanted as Rupert Pupkin in The King of Comedy. Mm-hmm. In fact, De Niro is in the film as the Jerry Langford character who was played by Jerry Lewis, but now he's called Marie Franklin. But it's it's clearly the same guy. That's what they want. But... What surprised me the most is how little care has been given for what invoking the real world would do with the Joker kind of situation. If you're dealing with a character who becomes a murderous supervillain and it's called Joker, there's no question it's him. It's not that they're going to fake us out and have someone else be the Joker. They did that in Gotham last year. They couldn't do it again. What happens is you get this inevitability where you're just watching a guy who's going to be the Joker. There's no question that he's like, he won't be redeemed. He won't be saved. He's not going to struggle. This is going to happen to him no matter what. It's a prequel. You know, it's not a prequel to any specific Batman movie, but it's a prequel to the Joker. And so you spend 120 minutes watching the Joker come out. And it's just not that interesting. And and Phoenix is, is doing everything he can to make it interesting. Is Joker what a comic book movie would look like when it was fed through the themes you described of Tiff? And where do those come in? I think they would like it to be. I think very, very little thought was actually put into executing that. They've created 
a sense that the Gotham in, the, in, this, in this film's world, the Gotham of this film's world is uh, riven by class problems, but not racial problems, which is fascinating because to make a movie uh, about 1981 New York with no awareness that there were racial tensions is just dumb. But also comic booky in a way that works against the concept of the elevated superhero movie that they're trying to build. So the tensions are implied and sometimes explicit. They're speak. They're uh, Thomas Wayne turns out to be kind of a right wing jerk and and says things that are very similar to Trump. Again, they're quoting the present day in this period piece film, which again makes no sense. Why not set it in the present day and have it be a commentary? So if I wanted to understand the themes we've kind of just discussed and and how they come from our world and where it's going. What's the one movie someone like me who has not been to any TIFF screenings needs to see in the next few months? Oh, there's a couple. Parasite, uh, Bong Joon-ho's film, is all about this, although it's always subtext. It's, um, it's the best iteration of it since it's all played through character and motivation rather than commentary and uh, didacticism. Or The Platform. Uh, which is this tremendous Spanish film that's in Midnight Madness that um, is about people who commit themselves voluntarily to a nightmarish vertical prison where you and a cellmate are placed on a floor and you're there for a month together and there are many floors above you and many floors below and your cell has a big square hole in the center. And every day at the same time, a platform filled with food descends from the first level all the way down to the bottom. And there's enough food on that platform for everybody if everybody takes their share. And invariably, they do not. And so the people, you know, if you're above 30, 35, you're probably fine. If you're down to about 60, you're going to get some bones and you're going to get some scraps. And below that, you're eating your cellmate. And it's about inequality and literally an upstairs-downstairs relationship. And, of course, every month you get moved and you don't know where you're going. You and your cellmate will be moved to either higher or lower in order to change things up. And it's incredibly cruel. It's sort of the model of a state-sponsored apathetic torture that was created in Cube, 20 years ago, uh, Vincenzo Natale's film. But now it's perfected because there's a, a hope and a hopelessness. If you hang on for a month, you might better your status or you might end up really low on the totem pole. And rather than just sit with that, it finds ways to tweak and twist and develop and complicate the premise. And for, you know, 90 minutes, you're just on this ride with these characters. Uh, it's... Amazing. And Netflix has bought it, so it will show up, which is the other great thing. It, it's coming. You won't have to worry that if you missed it at TIFF, you'll never see it again. My last question is, if this festival is all about what people were feeling two years ago when these films began to be conceived of, what in your experience usually happens afterwards? What can we look forward yeah. to? Yeah. Well, if last year was about struggle and this year's about fighting back, or in, in some cases, actually, some of these movies are about punching down and how... Um, People in power abuse that authority and abuse that privilege. I don't know what comes next. I mean, I think next year's an election year. So if anything, things are going to be more political in the States. Right. And the films that we see in 2021 might be utterly hopeless. Uh, maybe we'll go back to dystopias and apocalypses, although I can't imagine more than we're already having. I guess we have to see where the wind blows, right? I don't know what happens next. Right now, I feel pretty helpless as a, as a dual <laughs> citizen who's watching Canada slide towards a minority government or whatever. It just feels like there's nobody at the wheel right now. And in the States, <clears throat> worse, uh, there is somebody at the wheel, but he keeps trying to lick it. I don't know what happens next. I don't know where art goes, but I really hope that the people who are making movies this year are going to make something next year that makes me feel a little bit better about the things they're going to make the year after that. 
Thanks, Nora. Did that make any sense? I'm still so tired. Go get some sleep. I want to. <laughs> Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, the host of Someone Else's Movie. Go check it out while Norm goes home and passes out. That was The Big Story. If you want more, they are at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And of course, if you just want to listen to us, you can do it wherever you get your podcasts, on Apple, on Google, on Stitcher, on Spotify, or on Thunderbird. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.